Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I teach you all something that I just learned about myself, because that's how I roll. Uh, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And this episode of Teach Me Something, um, as you've seen from the title, I wanted to talk about animals that live in caves, in and around, mostly in. Um, I just kind of missed biology. Of course. I like caves. Uh, a good combination then. Caves are super cool. Yeah. We went to a cave this year on our holiday. We've been there before, but unfortunately this cave doesn't really have animal life because it's all cold and stuff. Yeah. It's still Canada, super cool though. But it was still super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of all I, I have to say about caves. Do you, do you have anything to add about caves? They're dark. Batman. In fact, being dark is one of the elements that makes them a cave. There has to be an area where no sunlight penetrates into it. Did you learn that at the cave this year? I did, yes. Yeah, good job. Thanks. Good job retaining that knowledge. Thank you. Lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, how about you teach me something? Awesome. Um, So, so caves. Caves. Um, That's what we're talking about, you know, this episode. (laughs) Kind of. I mean, the the title was spoilers for this. There's a whole geology aspect to caves that I'm not going to touch on at all. Okay. I mean, you just did. Said something about what defines a cave. I'm not even doing that. Okay. I don't even care about what defines a cave. I just want to know what animals. <laughs> Great. So cave animals have been really fascinating to biologists for a really long time. Um, Darwin actually called them wrecks of ancient life oh. um, because of all their, quote, regressive traits. You know, loss of, sure. I say, loss of pigment, loss of whatever. Um, at that time, at Darwin's time, they, they didn't really study cave animals enough to understand that they had gained in other places. So it just seemed like kind of a de-evolution, but that's not how evolution works. <laughs> I understand, but that was the feeling or the thought. It's still a, a common sentiment among people that don't necessarily understand how evolution's not some sort of directional force. Right. Um, but the first cave species was discovered in 1768. It was a cave salamander called Proteus anguinus. Um, and so cave ecosystems have been really, like I said, interesting to biologists. And they've done lots of kind of study with them lately because they kind of present these little controlled environments. With all right. of the adaptations, cave animals, at least the ones that purely dwell in caves, they don't leave. And therefore they don't go to another population Even, somewhere else. There's very little input output from caves so it's a very it's very closed environment it can be used as a sort of control almost to understand evolutionary processes so it's pretty cool that makes sense um so caves not necessarily caves but water and air filled cavities are very very common um in north america and eurasia especially okay uh antarctica is the only continent that doesn't have caves not surprisingly sure um, more than 94% of the world's unfrozen freshwater is stored underground in these cave systems. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's a much higher percentage than I anticipated. Uh, 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 me too. Uh, that one really surprised me. Um, so for example, in the U.S. alone, there are nearly 50,000 known caves. Um, and it's been estimated that there's 521,000 cubic kilometers of subservic Subsurface cavities. Cubic kilometer. Vo- the volume. Yeah. It's the volume. 521,000 kilometers. That's just a big measurement. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. And most of them contain water. Um, and, and the whole thing about this is that we just don't know much about it. Still, it's difficult cave, for us caves to are get very there. poorly studied. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to get there. And also, we're really learning what an impact any sort of human interference has with caves. Mm-hmm. Um for instance, before we knew what we were doing, we definitely spread white-nosed fungus from bats in different cave systems just by bringing in dirty camera equipment to photograph them. Um, so, like, there's a lot of devastating things we can do to a cave ecosystem simply by existing in it. So it's very hard to study. Sure. Um, so there are many more cave species than I thought. And this is, you know, since each cave system has kind of their own specific animals, right? Yeah. You're not going to find the same salamanders in all the caves. Um, So 10 years ago, I don't have the current numbers. 10 years ago in the USA alone, there are 1,138 described species and subspecies of um, cave-dwelling animals. 
that's 239 different genera and 112 families, even though it's really mostly insects, arachnids, crustaceans, and some fish. That'd that's be... kind of the, the main um, yeah. animals you're going to find. So in total, estimated that there's over 21,000 land species and 7,000 aquatic species that live in caves. More land species Somewhere, than aquatic. Oh, a lot more. Really? Amphipods, isopods, the number of invertebrates that you're talking about okay. are crazy. Yes. Um, it's close to 30,000 in all, but we know that that's definitely going to be an underestimate underestimate because we just don't really know what's going on down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about cave animals, there's actually three different groups depending on how much of their life they are living in the cave. Um, so you have trogloxines, troglophiles, and troglobites. These are our three categories. A trogloxine is a cave guest. Okay. These guys live near or just inside the cave entrance and they kind of maybe will sleep there, but... They don't actually fully habit it. They'll do one part of their life cycle there. Maybe they'll reproduce there, but leave for the rest of their life cycle. Maybe they'll just sleep there, but they don't ever do anything else. That kind of thing. Um, Troglophile is a cave lover. Makes Um, sense. They live primarily in the cave, but they sometimes explore outside for food or leave to make come back, that kind of thing. Um, And then troglobite means a cave dweller. And yes, I said troglobite. Mm -hmm. It's not to be confused with troglodyte. Yes. Which is a human cave dweller and often used like as an insult these days to insinuate someone's old fashioned or slow or, you know, like a caveman. Yeah. Um, Also not to be confused with trilobite. Very similar word Which is an extinct three-lobed arthropod. Well, the bite... That lived in trilo. Trilo means three lobes. Trilo. Yeah. Trilo, three lobes. But doesn't bite effectively mean lives there? Bite means like living thing. Yeah. It doesn't really narrow anything down. within its three tubes. (laughs) Um, So, troglobites are uh, from the ancient Greek for hole dweller, by the way. Makes sense. Uh, Are permanent residents of the cave that can't leave due to those specialized adaptations they have to live in the caves. Um, But let's talk about the trogloxines first. Let's do that. Not just because it sounds like a cool race of of aliens on Star Trek or something. Yeah. The the trogloxines. On planets with lots of caves. (laughs) That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Um... They're cave guests, like I said. They're uh, they're really important to the health of the entire like cave system. Um, they bring was... in their leftover food yeah. from outside. They bring in their poop, um, all that kind of stuff. It'd be really unlikely that animals would be able to live entirely in the cave like they do now without trogloxines and trogophiles. Um, so there's several extinct trogloxines that we know about. You know, a cave lion, cave leopard, cave hyena, mega sloths used to frequent caves quite a bit. Okay, cave bears. Um, so climate change did play a role, but a large part about why some of these cave animals went extinct is that Neolithic humans came along and thought, hey, sheltering in these caves is a great idea. If only there weren't so many dangerous animals in here. So we'll just take care of that because you know how humans roll. So, um, for example, in a single cave in Western France, archaeologists actually found over 800 cave bear skeletons. Um, Wow. Yeah, there's definitely not 800 cave bears that lived in that cave, so people were, you know, right. slaying them and bringing them in there, I guess. Um, so, other trogloxines for now, we have uh, types of birds. Cliff swallows, cave swallows, they build nests of mud and spit on mm-hmm. the side of the cave wall. Yeah. Probably seen something like that on planet Earth or like, life. Like there was little, something like that. Yeah, like little pocket-like little, yeah. nests that like are... Pop out of the side of the wall. Yeah, yeah they're really tiny birds, so... They're not big nests, but um, obviously bats are, obviously. are the most common, well-known cave guest everyone knows and, about. And Batman. Um, but Batman's only one guy. He's not as common as 20 million bats in one cave. I guess so. But yeah. he's pretty common in the one bat cave. Yeah, the one bat cave. That's yeah. true. Um, so most people assume that bats live in caves. Well, sometimes. Um, well, that's the thing, is I think there's an impression that most bats live in a cave. I think that when you ask people where bats live, they would say a cave. Um, that's uh, definitely largely not true, though. Right. Um, so it seems as if the, the pattern is that species that live in warmer places might be more frequent to like live in a cave. Sure. In colder places, the caves are just too cold. Yeah. Um, and... 
like for example, in Australia, one third of their bats live in caves and all of them are the micro bat species. All the mega bat species live outside of caves. Okay. And some of the micro bats. Okay. Um, you know, forests and other types of dwellings. But, right. Because um, my impression was that a lot of them actually just lived in trees. Uh, in, yeah, in a place like Australia. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say a place that, That's like not necessarily... Here. Okay. <laughs> trees might not be as common. They might shelter more in man-made structures, but... You know, whatever keeps you warm, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the largest bat colony is in Bracken Cave, Texas. And it contains about 20 million bats. Okay. That sounds familiar for some reason. In the world. Um, So, you know, some species are going to use caves for daytime roosting, but others just use them for hibernation. They don't use them during the summer. Um, You know, caves do provide kind of a stable level of humidity, temperature, no light, no noise. It's easier for a bat to hibernate in low temperature than live in low temperature. So sure. they may they may hibernate in caves in low temperature areas, but not sleep there when they're actually awake and have to keep their body warm. Um, so just, you know, fun, fun facts, because I love bats. Um, so bats have the special adaptation to hang upside down for months at a time. Obviously, we would not be able to, <laughs> to do this. Not they use, finger strength. They use no input. Oh, well, I wouldn't say that would be our main Toe problem. Strength. I think it would be like the blood rushing to your head, but okay, um, bats can hang upside down without using any energy input. So they have a tendon from their talons that's connected to their upper body, um, and it's, they don't use. It's not connected to a muscle, so they don't have to use their muscle input for this. They basically kind of lock themselves in place when they hang. The weight of their body holds themselves. Um, okay. So it's kind of like the flamingo thing we talked about, how a flamingo leg just kind of locks, locks in, in place, place like yeah. that. It actually requires energy to let go. But um, bats can drop straight into flight when they wake up. That's pretty cool. Yeah, they just drop to wake up. They're like, okay, I'm good to go. Um, but despite, you know, like 20 million bat caves, there's mo- most caves don't have any bats. Most caves aren't suitable for bat activity. Um, so, like... One in thousands of caves usually meets a bat's actual requirements. You know, it needs to be near food and water. It needs to have the right temperature, safe from predators. Um, And then even ideal roosts can't be used for more than one season at a time. Really? Um, The bacteria and guano and methane. Gets to be too much um, for the bats. A lot lot of stuff in there is not ideal anymore for the bats. So will they like rotate between like a series of caves or is that kind of unknown? I don't. No, personally. Okay. I don't think it's unknown. I'm just not sure about that question, though. Um, so, well, like, like yes, I think that they do rotate. It's not like they're in unhabited for a long time. No. Th- right. That part I know. It's not for a long time. No. Um, so, there's a cool exception to this whole bat stole them in caves when it's cold. Because in Northwest Territories, at least, for example, like, there's a few examples like this, but... Um, bats are able to live in these caves heated by geothermal vents from inside the earth, right? Cool. And it's actually toasty warm in there right. for them all the time. Um, probably a lot nicer than anywhere else in the wild in Northwest Territories at that, Sounds at that like time. A so, spa. Yeah, awesome. So, you know, other cave guests, bears, raccoons, bobcats, rats, pack rats, lots and lots of types of arthropods, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so troglophiles, though, are animals that can leave the cave for small periods, but they do spend most of their lives or the most important parts of their lives in the cave. Um, they are likely to live in, like, the shallow areas of the caves, like troglocks are. They don't go deep into the cave because they have to come out. Yeah. Um, so as I said before, they are also helpful in bringing in the nutrients that that cave ecosystem thrives on. So, like, examples are certain salamanders, um, some, some live inside the caves and are true cave animals, but some, you know, um, have colored skin, see well, and just kind of live near the cave entrance, like, uh, Uricea longicata, which is the long-tailed salamander that lives in Kentucky. You'll find lots of those there. Um, isopods and amphipods are common in the shallow areas of caves. So just so you know, isopods and amphipods are types of crustaceans. They're both, those are families of crustaceans. Isopods are like wood lice. Mm-hmm. Um, they have many legs that look the same. Isopod, same leg. Right. And uh, amphipods have legs that are different shapes. But they're still... Amphipod, different legs. Uh, yeah. But they're what people would still normally classify as like an insect or a bug. Uh, they just... Uh, I mean, they're a crustacean. Crustacean. But yeah. if okay. you saw one, most people don't really know the difference between isopods and, and bugs. Yeah, Like exactly. little pill bugs. That, yeah, anyways. 
Um, but they have like a hard shell and all those things. Yeah, but they're very tiny. Okay. You wouldn't have a good time seeing them without microscopes, a lot of them. Um, there's things like flatworms. Mm-hmm. Flatworms will actually crawl over, you know, areas to look for food and leave this sticky slime trail behind them that isopods and amphipods can get stuck in and little things like that. And then they sure. go eat them. Um, cave crickets. Uh they're similar to surface crickets. They're just paler brown, smaller eyes. But cave cricket eggs and larvae are actually really um, important food source for a lot of cave systems. Mm-hmm. Um, for other examples, you know, daddy long legs, other arachnids, that kind of thing. Um, but the animals, you know, those guys can leave. They can find better conditions if they need to. Troglobites, true troglobitic species, don't leave, don't have that option. They can't survive outside the cave. Um, so, you know, they have to be really adapted for this relatively weird environment. Um, like if you truly think about this as a living organism, organism, there's no night and day distinction. Right. Little seasonal distinction, except for, like we talked about, there's water in caves. A lot of times the water levels in caves will vary seasonally, which will mean the food levels will vary seasonally. So there is some differentiation, but this is nothing like what a normal animal would face in a seasonal change. There would be some temperature change if the water temperature changed as well. But again, that would probably be fairly minimal in comparison. There are temperature changes, but you're right. They're they're not large. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't really affect these animals, right? Sure. Um, so violent winds and storms, they don't have to deal with that. Uh, there might be air currents, you know, under some circumstances. Humidity is stable. Um, there are sometimes floods and droughts in caves. Yeah. There are. But obviously, again, very rare compared to the outside world. Um, and then, you know, the ecosystem of each cave is very different. Like every cave has such, any little thing changed can change the way the cave works, right? The water flow, which brings in the nutrients, which this, this, this. Um, you know, some have very little water and very little food. Some have water all year round. Some like Bracken Cave, for example, with its 20 million bats, Gives you a layer of dung between 18 and 28 meters deep. Meters. Meters. The visualization equipment doesn't work deeper than 18, but they know the cave floor could be up to 10 meters deeper than that. So yeah, somewhere between 18 and 28 meters deep is the guano. That's like... Layer. Five stories? I don't know. I just know meters. That's like nine of you standing on top of each other. Exactly. So, yeah, maybe four or five stories deep. Okay, wow. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, like we've been talking about, the ultimate sources of nearly all the food in caves are from outside the cave. Um, Besides those trogloxines and troglophiles, um, running water and and sometimes even air currents can carry like carcasses or organic debris and fungi and bacteria then eat these little things and then things can eat the fungi and bacteria. So cave animals generally aren't very big. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't That's expect them to be at all. That's one of the main adaptations in a cave. Um, most cave activities take place in darkness. As Everett was saying, there you know is a requirement basically to be called a cave that there are areas of absolute darkness Except for it doesn't count if those areas are broken up by bioluminescence. That's not yeah, to say yeah, now fine. that you don't have a cave. It can have so, light. It just can't. The light just can't come from direct yes. sunshine. Yes. So here's an example. Arachnocampa is a genus of fungus gnats. Okay. Arachnocampa means spider web worm. By the way. I was going to say there's some sort of connection to spider there. Yeah. So here's what happens. Um, So these guys live in Australia and New Zealand, and they're the cause of a lot of cool glowing caves you've probably heard about. Um, See, now I can't remember the name of it. Waipoto. Waitopo. Waipopo. Waipopo cave in New Zealand. Because it was on Bones that one time. (laughs) I thought maybe you'd remember because I've made you watch that show way too many times. Um... People call them glowworms. They're not worms, though. They're gnats. That's kind of cool. So they're flies. Yeah. But the larval form is what glows. So worms. Uh, yeah. Okay. People. People can. Yeah. So they hang these bioluminescent, sticky silk threads down from the ceiling mm-hmm. to lure in prey and catch them. Makes sense. So like, 
kind of objectively a little bit gross. They're like mucusy looking and kind of drippy anyways, but they're bioluminescent. So it can be very beautiful, especially when it reflects off water in the cave all around. Sure. Um, as adults, they don't do anything. They just mate and die. Like they don't even eat when they're adults. They literally just mate and die. So um, the larvae is what we're really, we're really talking about here. Um, there's also an insect called Orphelia fultoni, which is um, another species of fly. And their larvae is also bioluminescent and is the only bioluminescent species of fly in North America. So these guys actually produce the bluest light of any of the bioluminescent insects. So if you want to see them, you need to go to Dismal Canyon. (laughs) Dismal's. Sorry, Dismal's Canyon. (laughs) You're really selling it with, it's just dismal. I didn't name it. Um... They live in the Appalachian Mountains and the Cumberland Plateau. So Alabama, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Virginia. Okay. And they're sometimes called Dismalites because of how they live in Dismal's Canyon, which Uh is in northwest Alabama. Um, Dismal's Canyon is home to the largest population of Orphelia fultoni anywhere in the United States. So if you want to see cool glowing caves, go to Dismal's Canyon, Alabama. I promise it's not Dismal. That's the tagline for the area. You can't promise that. You've never been there. No, I was trying to. I was trying oh, to think of what the tagline would be. You're trying to mark it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you'll lead into it. It's terrible here. Come see how terrible it is. Yeah, that would work too. Um, so, so I'll talk about a few other cave dwelling arthropods. Um, so structures that are normally considered adaptive are kind of gone in the cave species that don't need them. So arthropods have lost their circadian rhythm. They've developed low metabolic reproductive rates. They've actually increased their hairiness and, you know, enlarged their sensory organs, which makes sense. Right. Um, longer, like, appendages, antennae, legs, that kind of thing. Um, insects, arachnids, millipedes, beetles are definitely well represented, mostly in caves, those ones. Um, evidence that our ancient humans did recognize cave invertebrates actually, well, or cave animals in general, I guess. They probably weren't that specific. Um, dates back to 18,000 years ago. They discovered actually, not, they didn't discover this 18,000 years ago. Recently, they discovered this thing from 18,000 years ago. Okay. In the French Pyrenees a cave in the French Pyrenees, they discovered a bone, a bison bone that had a carving um, on it of a cave cricket. They've decided that it was the troglophilus species, by the way. Okay. So must've been a pretty decent drawing if we were able to identify yeah. that. Um, so yeah, 18,000 years ago, someone drew a cave cricket on a bone or engraved one, I should say. Um, there's cave spiders, shockingly. Uh, they have lost their pigment. They have obsolete eyes. They're nearly absent. Um, some of them just don't have eyes. There's also like things like blind shrimp. I said, there's lots of different, Mm -hmm. there's lots of crustaceans, both in the water and, and terrestrially. Um, but specifically cave insects, like I said, we've got like a ton of beetles. Um, we've got, you know, flies. We have, okay. Zygentoma is a, is a type of insect class of insects and i only included them because the insects in this class have really cool names even if they're really icky in my opinion <laughs> okay so, silverfish oh yeah are disgusting but you know fish moths fire brats anyways i know i what is a fire brat i don't know it sounds so cool but i don't think i want to meet one because they sound gross well bratty they're all like a silverfish so ew <laughs> okay yeah anyways beetles seem to be the most common insect chocolate species but that's not saying much. Beetles are the most common everything species. So, mm-hmm. do um, the percentages of their species in representation in caves equal about their representation? Yeah, I would outside say, of caves. Yeah. So yeah, there's just a lot of beetles everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um. So obviously, um, we talked about they're going to have longer legs, longer these. They don't have eyes. They don't have pigment without sunlight. Um, they cannot move from cave to cave. They can't go out in the sun, obviously. Um, yeah, right. So we've got we've got animals or insects that represent these relic forms, but they may not actually be that old. 
What do you mean by relic forms? So a lot of the traits that they have lost, you know, put them back in a more ancestral primitive condition. Okay. So it's like, this could be what this animal looked like this long ago. Okay. But they are newly, uh, have newly evolved these traits. So that's called convergent evolution. Okay. When you didn't, um, when you didn't inherit a trait from a common ancestor, you just happened to evolve the same trait as some other animal did mm-hmm. or plant somewhere else in the world, simply due to the fact that you're facing similar environmental pressures. Right. So they've kind of like evolved back into these primitive states, but they don't have anything to do with those primitive bugs. Right. Um, it's just a pretty cool chance for us to see what, you know, could have been. We don't know necessarily well, that's what Well, I'm sure it would give been, insight but... into the environment for our common ancestors as well, right? Yes. Yes. Um, so we've also got, um, just wanted to mention, the thing I find that is very interesting um, is there's actually a decent amount of Lepidoptera. That sounds familiar, but I can't say I remember what that is. Moths and butterflies. Really? Yeah. Yeah, more than I would have thought that are more like troglophilic than troglobitic. But, but okay. yeah, they spend a lot of time underground, and I was surprised to learn about that. Even even in the like final adult form with wings and flying around and stuff? Like I would assume that's when they would likely leave the cave. Um. The more, yeah, the more troglophilic species. Yes, especially because they tend to not last very long in that form. Right. I could see them living in, like, larval larval forms. Easily, yeah. Yeah, that's why I'd say they're more on the troglophilic side than the troglobitic side. Um, So besides insects, there's lots of other invertebrates. You know, I'm not going to list them all, but, like, the groups. I'll just do a quick list of the groups. There's planarians and oligocates, flatworms, velvet worms, polychates, leeches, mollusks, amphipods, copepods, decapods. You know, lots of things that have legs. Ten legs. I was going to say, the last one had ten. Isopods, so. synchorids, you know, akari, so like ticks and all those gross little right. things. Uh, like opaleons or like harvestmen, like daddy long legs, that kind of thing. Got that it. aren't technically spiders, but we think are spiders. Obviously spiders. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as vertebrates, uh, there's no known mammals or birds that live an exclusive like troglobitic life. Um, but Troglophilic, are, though. Um, correct. Correct. We did talk about a few. Yeah. Um, but there are definitely other vertebrates that do. And, and most notably, we're going to talk about cave salamanders and cave fish. Okay. Cave fish is going to be the focus of kind of the second half of this because there's been a lot of cool studies done on um, their their adaptations to living in caves, especially the loss of their eyesight. And I really want to talk about that. But um, first, let's just uh, talk a little bit about salamanders. So there's like 22 to 30 kind of different species of cave salamander that live exclusively in caves. Okay. Maybe. (laughs) Best guess. Who knows? This is all such a who knows type of thing. I mean, they often are colored white. Uh, They're smaller and slower than surface salamanders. They're blind. They use like vibrations and and like that kind of sense to catch their prey. Um, Some actually are still kind of in a more larval state and they keep their feathered gills for breathing so they can, you know, go underwater if it's a largely aquatic cave. Um, The Ozark blind salamander, for example, spends its youth as, you know, an aquatic larva with the gills. And then after it goes through its metamorphosis, it loses its gills and it kind of moves deeper into the cave. So it kind of lives near the entrance when it's a larvae, and then when it grows up, it moves farther into the cave. Um, and then when it does that, like it has eyes when it's a, a larvae, and then when it metamorphosizes into an adult, skin grows over its eyes. Okay. Which obviously does not happen with surface salamanders when they morph right. into an adult. Um, so with the note, like the one exception is Proteus anguinus, the one we first talked about that was identified in 1758, 1768, whatever I said, um, every other cave salamander are members of a family called Plethodontidae, which is a lungless salamander. Okay. Um, so just breathes through its skin. Right. Anyways, um, but back to Proteus anguinus, because this makes me laugh. So when it was identified in 1689 for the first time, it was identified as dragon's larva. Okay. So Johann Weichard von Valvasor. Anyways, he was sure this was a dragon. A von Valvasor. Valve. Valvasor. 
Closer to Venezuela. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, um, because, and apparently in Slovenian folklore, a cave salamander is believed to be the larval state of a dragon. So. Very cool. Maybe that's why he thought this. There was mythology surrounding it. But yeah. then, you know, the Austrian naturalist Joseph Nicholas Lorenz came around in 1768 and was like, guys, this is a salamander. It's not a dragon. Way less cool. So sorry. He's kind of a party pooper, that Too guy. Too bad, so sad. Yeah. Arguably less cool than dragon larva salamanders are the cave fish. No. Um, the oldest description that we have of an obligate cave fish, so, you know, obligated to live in a cave, a, a okay. truly, you know, troglobiotic um, cave fish, is called Sinocyclochelus hyalinus, or the hyaline fish, which is easier to say. Um, and it's almost 500 years old, the description of this fish. Um, it lacks scales, it lacks pigmentation, it lacks external eyes. Um, the first recorded description of a cave fish, like a troglobatic cave fish, um, it was mentioned in 1540 in the wow. travel notes of, oh dear, Ying Jingji, the local governor of Guangxi. I don't know if I said all that right, but okay. so it was Chinese, yeah. <laughs> Chinese report. Um, so cave fish tend to be long and skinny. Um, you know, you want to be able to fit into smaller areas and you just kind of easy to wiggle your body for movement. Sure. Um, they have to swim kind of long distances. They have nerves on their head along the sides, kind of, that kind of add extra sensory um, perception for them since they don't have the eyes. Um, <laughs> young fish, larval fish, um, will actually, they freeze when they feel movements because uh, the parents... That they will eat them. I see. So they got, they got to be real careful when they're born. Sure. So there are more than 200 described species of um, cave fish right now. Again, found on every continent except for Antarctica, shockingly. Um, they, they don't have very large ranges, obviously. They're very specific to their caves yeah. and cave systems. Um, they're, they're in no way related. Let me just be clear. Like, there is cave fish from all parts of the fish spectrum that are not very related to each other besides just being fish. Um, so typical adaptations you're going to find in a cave fish are the reduced eyes and pigmentation we talked about. Um, some species like the Mexican tetra, shortfin, molly, the omongara, some catfish, and this is a fun one, the Indorionectus evizardi. <laughs> Have like a cave form and a like a normal above ground form, so you scientists can compare okay. them to each other. Um, so we've talked about these cave adaptations a few times. Uh, I wanted to give you some examples of the different ways fish evolve for life in caves. So the term troglomorphy is what we're talking about. A troglomorphy is an adaptation associated with cave life. Makes sense. It does. When you end with morphy, it's like, you know, the form of the body and then travel cave, you know, change your body for the cave, basically. Mm -hmm. um, so caves are um, relatively short-lived young geological features. They don't last right. long. They're not old or ancient. Um, and so we know that these adaptations in cave animals have risen really rapidly and right. they've been relatively quickly in ev evolutionary terms. Uh, and they kind of start as the troglophile type of animal and then they get more and more specialized and move into the cave permanently. Um, so of course, most adaptations in the cave are for finding food because there's just not much available. That makes sense. Right. Um, so the loss of eye that we've been talking about, that's called anophthalmia. And other examples are larger fins to give them more energy efficient swimming. Okay. Like larger fins relative to the rest of their body. Right. Um, a loss of scales, loss of swim bladder. So swim bladder is what kind of helps fish stay buoyant. I imagine it's not as necessary in the shallow waters of caves, but I don't actually know. I tried to look up why they've lost the swim bladder, but, um, and, and, you know, depending on the species, they can be partial losses or full losses of these um, mm. features. Um, eyes are usually present in the start and then actually degenerate as opposed to never forming in the first place. But we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. Um, and then there's some cases where the supposedly blind cave fish, we, we realize they can actually see just really badly. <laughs> so like juvenile Mex Mexican tetras, they can sense light um, versus cells in their pineal gland. 
their pineal eye, if you will. Interesting. To give some credence to some conspiracy theories about your third eye <laughs> or pineal eye or right. whatever. Um, yeah. So they just have photoreceptive cells in that part of their brain. Okay. Um, Congo blind barb fishes are actually photophobic. So we, we know they can sense light because they actively avoid it and hate it. Um, in like really extreme cases, this lack of lights actually changed the circadian rhythm in cave fish, like compared to their land living, or sorry, <laughs> surface. <laughs> fish don't live on the land, guys. I know what a Not fish is. I know what a fish is. I got this. Um, so yeah, that cave form of the Mexican tetra, the circadian rhythm is about 30 hours long which is obviously not 24 hours. Right. Um, the Phreatichthyus andrusii, which is like one of the model cave organisms. It's so specialized to caves. Um, its circadian rhythm is 47 hours. So wow. those are adaptations to help them save energy. Probably. <laughs> and by so, circadian rhythm, you're just talking about like when they naturally choose to sleep on what cycle? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily only sleep, but yes, like your body's natural rhythm of when you have peaking your energy, when right. you're, yeah, when you're awake, when you're not, that kind of thing, when your metabolism is going, working hard or not kind of thing. Makes sense. Um, so obviously without sight, they need other exa- like senses. Touch. Obviously. <laughs> um, kind of, yeah. So they have a lateral line, you know, like most fish have the lateral line that runs laterally down their body. Um, so that you know, senses vibrations. Uh, cave fish might use mouth suction to sense nearby obstacles. And that's oh. apparently comparable to echolocation. I was going to ask if that's what that was. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, they use chemoreception. So like smell and taste from their taste buds are, are more developed. Um, there are cave fish in the groups of fish that have electroreception, like the catfish and the knife fish. But we haven't found electroreception being enhanced in the cave dwelling version of of those fish yet. Um, okay. So not at all surprisingly, <laughs> the level of adaptation is kind of directly correlated with the amount of time they've lived in a cave, that species. I mean, that totally right? makes sense. Like, though, not like... surprisingly, yeah. yeah. Um, so another common troglomorphy is being small. You can't gorge yourself on all that food in the cave. Um, so cave fish are usually between 2 and 13 centimeters long. Um, some get to like 20, 23 centimeters the big guys are um they're called ophisternan swamp eels yeah so Lots they're of swamps and caves they're <laughs> i don't i didn't name them <laughs> about 36 centimeters long um and then there's an undescribed species of mossier fish so they gotta work how, on that wait, how, at 43 how centimeters undescribed and yet have a description like 43 centimeters oh yeah biology's got lots of species that we think we've discovered but we've not described mm. this is a thing in biology okay yeah i was just gonna say because that's obviously a description <laughs> having some basic information about a fish is is not what counts as described in biology that's i figured all. that that's was the all. case but <laughs> still bad use of terminology yeah so cavefish are often the top predators in the food chain Sure. In their caves. Um, they will feed on the small invertebrates or um, they'll just feed on the detritus in the cave, but they don't have any predators in there. Um, they're going to have a low metabolic rate and a lot of them can survive really long periods of starvation. So, for example, um, a captive Phreatobia cystinarium. I don't know what kind of fish that is. Okay. Um, they, it didn't feed for a year. And, wow. And it was fine. Okay. Yeah. So the cave form, we're going to talk about these Mexican fish in a second, but the cave form of these Mexican um, tetras, they can actually build up really unusually large fat reserves. They binge eat when there's food available. And I think we talked about the tuna having some of that, but like most fish don't have fat reserves. We've talked about this in the past, but like that's just not what fish do. Right. Birds don't do it. Fish don't do it. They have to kind of constantly be eating, basically. You would think. Um... Yeah, so they have low metabolic rates. They can, some of them can store fat, uh, so they can go without food for a long time, much longer than their above ground relatives. Um, and then, you know, in the the dark habitat, how are you going to find a mate? So, like the mating displays that you would see for a surface fish has kind of shifted from visual to something that can be felt, okay. like by a movement of the water. 
So, like, when the Mexican Tetra um, is trying to find a mate, they, they do these movements underwater that make turbulence, and the other fish replies with some other coded turbulence message. Right. Um, it's pretty pretty cool. That's um, cool. Not surprisingly, again, cave fish are slow breeders. It takes a lot of energy to reproduce. It does, yeah. Um, so there's really extensively different uh, strategies for this type of thing. Some lay eggs. Some are ovoviviparous, so they give birth... Like they, the eggs are fertilized inside them, grow inside them, hatch inside them, and then okay. they, gi- they give birth to live young. Right. Um, so the fish in the genus Amblyopsis, it's a, you know, just a few, there's different cave fish in this genus, but they all have this unique ability amongst fish. No other fish does this. They brood their eggs in their gill chambers. Oh. To protect them and keep them there. Yeah, keep them close, I guess. I don't know. It's um, it def- No like, other fish do that. They apparently sort of... can still ox- oxygenate yeah. themselves just fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, most cave fish live, you know, low, moderate water current, nothing really strong. But there are some species that live in a strong current, like waterfall climbing cave fish. It's a cool name. It, well, yes. That's more of a group than like a, oh. like a name, but you know. Well, cool group of fish then. <laughs> so, cavefish primarily live in freshwater. Um, there are some that live in ankyline caves. That's a new word for me. So, there's cave dwelling brochulas. That's an interesting name, which are viviparous fish, by the way. So, not ovoviviparous. They just brood live young like pregnancy and then just give birth to live young. No, so no eggs involved at all. Well, definitely eggs involved. There's eggs well, involved in all. It, it, it's more akin to the way that you would find a, you know, a mammal. I mean, there are viviparous snakes and sharks. There are some examples, but it's not very common in fish to be viviparous. Correct. To not involve that egg step as heavily. Yes. That's cool. Um. Anyways, Leucogobius goby fish. These are these are all very tough names. Milvaringa sleeper gobies and blind caveals. Anyways, those all can live in ankyline caves. So ankyline caves are mostly found in karstic regions. That word kept coming up. It basically just means limestone. I was going to ask if this was has to do with like acidity or alkaline um, nature of the water. Well, it's 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 just they're found in the tropics. So in limestone karstic areas in the tropics. And they have these areas that have slightly brackish water, so like slightly salty, but not like salt water levels. Right. And they have this lens of that that sits on top of seawater from up below. Okay. Salty seawater. So there's this um, varying salinity in these areas. Like you've probably seen cool videos about this online at some point where there's Areas that have kind of like more like fresh water and they have this very clear like. It looks um, like a layer. lake under the lake. basically. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Layer separating the fresh and salt waters. Anyway, so these fish have to, you know, be able to tolerate quite varying amounts of salinity in their environment. Right. Um, and like I said, the vast majority of cave fish, because in general are in the tropics or subtropics, you know, the warm weather and. Um, cave fish are strongly linked to these karst limestone areas because they leave underground sinkholes and subterranean rivers and yeah. limestone formations. Um, so we're discovering cave fish left, right, and center. In the early 90s, there was only about 50 species known. Now, or 2010, it was like 170. By 2015, there is about 200. So current estimates are that there's probably around 250 um, truly troglobitic cave fish species. Um, so gonna... we believe that we're pretty close to, well, I mean, that's still 20% more, but. Yeah, about 20% more, we think, maybe. Yeah, or 25%. But, but there's yeah. so many, there's so many potentials. Like, you know, again, we're talking about cave animals. There's just so much potential to never know a cave yeah. is even there. Um, so I just want to focus. Uh, to end things off on on one of these cavefish, that Mexican, the blind Mexican cavefish, so Astyanax mexicanus. Because mm-hmm. um, I want to talk about the cavefish eyes. It's Why are you smiling name. at my notes? Astyanax mexicanus? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, these fish have a cave form and a not cave form. 
Um, the cave forms are found in the Sierra del Abra of northeastern Mexico in about 29 caves that we know of. And the advantage of studying this fish is the fact that they have this very closely related same species of like surface swelling fish to compare them to, right? And yet each of these populations, I assume, are different. I- isolated to, to their cave, yes. Perfect. But that they can still reproduce with each other. They can still reproduce with each of the cave ones and with the subterranean ones, meaning we know mm-hmm. they haven't diverged uh, like which from each other that- very much, which means we can really use them for comparisons. Like, And, and does that mean that they are of not the same species, but of the same... It means they're the same species. The same species. However, biology... Everyone knows that we have no idea what we're talking about when it comes to species and sure. subspecies, but our closest definition is things that, you know, can't interbreed. Then we know they speciated. Right. Kind of thing. But that doesn't necessarily mean the opposite direction is accurate. So, like, yeah. if they can't interbreed, they're different species. Uh, yeah. But if they can't interbreed, it also doesn't mean they're the same species. Maybe more likely to go with a subspecies or something. They sure. wouldn't separate. There's it's, gray area here and I'm just poking on. It's a ton of, yeah. it's very subjective, this part. Except for now there's DNA, but it takes a long time to get this figured out. Okay. Um, so scientists think that at least five independent events led to all these different populations of cave. Astyanax, Mexicanus cavefish. So okay. it's not just like one time, like different times over the last one to two million years, um, which is really cool in like did the same exact things happen in every population or not kind of thing right like we can do a lot of comparative studies here um so like i said we're gonna be talking about the eyes so how do fish eyes normally develop um well so at the start of development the future forebrain you know front of brain okay um is divided into three kind of overlapping areas the anterior most area is going to make the forebrain and the eye field And something that's really important to the development of this and of, indeed, developing embryos of all vertebrates is called sonic hedgehog. Mm -hmm. And that is correct. You heard that right. Sonic hedgehog is a gene which makes a protein called sonic hedgehog. It's a signaling protein. Um, So, and yes, the whole way it got named and everything about it is hilarious. There's a, I don't have time to talk about the backstory. They were playing Sega at the time. Sonic hedgehog is great. Yes. So, sonic hedgehog signals... From the ventral midline. So ventral is the belly side. Mm-hmm. And midline is self-explanatory, I think. Middle. Um, right. So it tells the body to upregulate you know, up producing this gene and that gene, or this protein and that protein. And it tells the body to make a lot less of this other stuff. So don't make as much PAX2, PAX1. Make more PAX6 or vice versa. Sure. So sonic hedgehog is actually restricting PAX6. To only the dorsal regions. Because sonic hedgehog is in the ventral region and it's inhibiting PAC6, then PAC6 can only be in the dorsal area. So dorsal is on the more like the back side. Yeah. So that's where the eye things start to form. That's why they form. Okay. So you form optic cups, retinas, all that stuff. Um, okay, I know that everyone's probably still stuck on sonic hedgehog. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to it for a second because it's awesome. Um, there is a potential inhibitor of the sonic hedgehog signaling pathway. And they have named it Robotnikinin. Which is great. Of course, in honor of Sonic the Hedgehog's uh, rival nemesis, Dr. Robotnik. Evo? Ivo? I don't know how you say his name, his first name. Anyways, Eggman. Yeah. Dr. Robotnik. So, the eyes develop. How do they then degenerate? Is the question. That is a good question. <laughs> so it seems like Sonic Hedgehog's a little bit involved. Um, but the more they studied it, it seems like um, it's really only involved in like the size of the eyes, not whether they degenerate or form or what. Okay. So there is um, cave fish do show like a big increase in Sonic Hedgehog levels. So kind of inhibiting that eye development everywhere um it makes like smaller optic cups it makes the gap between the optic cups smaller and like longer optic stalks all this stuff is like messed up by the sonic hedgehog but not in a way that we couldn't they couldn't form normal eyes because when they inhibited sonic hedgehog in cave fish you're not seeing eye development restored just bigger eyes okay yeah so the actual 
physical degeneration of the eye seems to begin with um, the lens. It's called apoptosis, cell death in the lens, lens apoptosis. Um, so they did this really cool experiment. Evolutionary biologists, developmental biologists are crazy about this experiment. Okay, so they thought if the lens is influencing the eye degeneration in cavefish, what if we transplanted a normal lens from what we know is the same species surface fish yeah. in early development into the embryo um, and see what happens? Let's okay. rescue this eye. So they did this. They transplanted the, the lens into the optic cup of the you know exact same age embryo fish. Um, and they did it on only one eye. So they'd have a very good control, right? One side mm-hmm. is the on same, the same one fish. Side. Yes. Um, so the transplanted eye developed normally, but a smaller size. So that sonic hedgehog is needed to, yeah. to make the eye bigger, but it doesn't seem to be needed to make the eye go away. <laughs> okay. It's just there for size, apparently. Um, so the transplanted eye also grew, you know, retina, photoreceptor cells, retinal fibers, like came into just, it kind of, um, all seemed to develop pretty well, except for it wasn't able to respond to light. Oh. <laughs> and then they did an experiment where they put a cave fish lens into a surface fish eye and the eye failed to develop and it degenerated like it would in cave fish. So then now they know that the lens is like the crucial thing in optic development. Um, and it also tells us that apoptosis is controlled um, all within that lens. Yeah. Like it doesn't necessarily um, seem to have much outside outside influence going on, right? Um, but why does the eye degenerate was my big question. Because, I mean, yeah, they don't need them anymore, but that's not enough evolutionary speaking to make them just go away. Right. I mean, just, just ask your appendix, right? Things don't just go away just because we don't need them anymore. Um, so one reason is that the eye, and not necessarily just the eye, but most importantly, the brain areas associated with vision. Because you don't see with your eyes, you see with your brain. Correct. Um, it's really energetically expensive to maintain yeah. brain tissue. That's what I was going to um, ask. You can decrease your metabolic rate, your energy requirements, uh, by just needing less brain power. So the nervous system has to strike this balance between your these opposing things, like having good sensory abilities and having energy. <laughs> and obviously this is most important in these energy-deprived environments like caves. So they did some studies to get an understanding of the numbers here. They measured the oxygen consumption um, of the brain and eye tissues in the Astyanax fish. Mm-hmm. And um, so the optic tectum and the eyes added up to 15% of the resting metabolism needs of a, of a juvenile fish. Wow. Okay. So that's a ton. Um, so like the cost of your human brain is 20 to 25% of your um, resting energy. So think about these tissues that they didn't need anymore are costing 15%, almost as much as our brains, which are... I'm just going to say much more awesome than a fish brain. So, sure. <laughs> right. So energy, this is, this is a good hypothesis. We think this is probably right. I mean, another reason though is like eye and brain resources can then be put somewhere else. So it's not just you're saving the energy, but um, so like, for example, linked genes. Here's an example in cave fish with sonic hedgehog again. If you increase sonic hedgehog signaling, it also is linked to development of more taste buds taste buds, better, you know, taste sense, which, you know, we have seen in cave fish is highly enhanced. So that, you know, that extra shh, it's called shh because Sonic Hedgehog is S-H-H. Anyway, okay, so, got it. great. <laughs> I forgot to tell you that. I won't say it like that anymore. Um, <laughs> so all that extra Sonic Hedgehog, yeah, reduces the eyes, but it turns out it accidentally increased taste buds because those genes were linked. Mm-hmm. And so it was advantageous, so it was kept. Okay. So having linked genes is a reason why things may be lost when we don't understand why. Because they're linked to something that's actually advantageous. Um, and then they've done fluorescent dye experiments where they label certain cells developmentally early in development with fluorescence. And then yeah. they look at them la- later when the animal's grown up and see where they ended up. Yeah. Um, so cells that would have been part of the retina ended up in the hypothalamus of cave fish. And that area of your brain is used for lots of things, but like mapping and orienteering and navigating, that's a huge part of what your hypothalamus does. Um, 
So I guess the big question is why do cavefish develop this eye in the first place? Like why don't they just not grow the eye? Well, I assume that they have to grow it to get those cells and then those cells can then be distributed to other areas of the body. I mean, yeah, it's, mm, that's quite close. Okay. Um, so all vertebrate cave species that have been investigated so far, like embryonically, have this normal initial eye development. They all form an optic cup and lens placa and they all, you know, start differentiating their retinal layers, yada, yada, yada. And then after those early stages, things kind of fall apart. And this isn't just true in cave fish. It's true in cave salamanders. It's true in moles that live underground. Okay. They all, all vertebrates start developing this stuff and then lose it. Okay. They don't just not develop it. Seems to be a waste of energy. But, so, they've kind of discovered from a neurodevelopmental point of view, it is unavoidable. So the cells that contribute to the retina and other parts of the forebrain are just so intertwined genetically with developing a normal forebrain Okay. That it doesn't seem that we can make a proper brain without making that eye. Things are all linked together. They cool. happen at the same time. Right. If you weren't to do it, you'd just have a brain that didn't work. Yeah. Um, so there are some genetic guesses that they have kind of come up with by interbreeding the surface and the cave fish. So once they interbreed them once, you've got the, you know, they call it F1 generation, where they're both kind of 50-50 mixed. And, and then pretty the- fast. <laughs> Good in the corners. Got a lot of downforce. Oh, groaner. Um, <laughs> in the F2 generation. A little bit slower. Then you start crossing these crosses with other known crosses anyways. And you start to try to discover things um, genetically. And so they did that. And it took them a while. They identified 2,408 genes of interest. Maybe these would do something. They got it down to like six like promising ones. But these studies are going to take a while longer. So there's some good ideas, but not 100% known. Um, and then last but not least, I learned about this really cool geological feature in karst areas that are called karst windows. Okay. So they're regions where there was a cave and then, you know, limestone's not super stable. No. So the So the roof collapsed on these caves. And so now light's again entering these areas that there wasn't light in before. Okay. And, then, and the interesting thing is that in karst windows, you see cave animals that have regrained their surface traits like vision and pigmentation. Right. Um, and so, for example, our fish here, Ostianex mexicanus, there is um, one cave they live in that's in one of these karst windows um, called the Caballo Moro Cave. And it's a geologically young karst window. So it wasn't that long ago that this happened. Um, and yet, these cave fish have eyes. Got it. And these, they've been anal- like um, studied and the genetic analysis says that they are evolutionarily closer to the blind fish, the blind cave fish version than the, the other um, surface dwelling uh, ones. The surface dwelling ones. Um, so they're pretty sure they did regain vision. That's cool. And that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> in, in biology, there's like, these laws that are like, no, you can't regain this thing that you've already lost the exact gene for. There's just no way that would happen. You can't get that gene back. Like maybe you can develop some other system, but you can't get the exact anyways. And it's obviously like any other law, especially in biology, it's, it's meant to be broken, but it's, it's a super crazy thing to happen. And evolutionary biologists are like so excited about this. Um, cool. So the last thing I want to point out before closing is just that this root of eye degeneration isn't the only way. This is the way these fish do it. They okay. study other cave fish. There are different developmental processes that go on here. Um, so there's a, multiple mechanisms of eye regression. I just wanted to give you like an example of one so you had some idea of how it might happen. Um, but that also shows, again, these independent evolutions. It also shows how is there so many different ways to lose the same trait. That's convergent evolution like we talked about a little earlier where solving the same problem um, in, a, in a different way but, you know, leading to something that looks kind of the same. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that's that's about all for the cave animals. I don't really have any more time to, <laughs> to talk about any more cool studies. But there are cool studies. Um, I don't know what we're going to talk about next time. It's okay. I'm we'll very, figure it out very up in the air. I mean, I don't know if that would entice our listeners. Probably not. Because I'm pretty sure I know all our listeners now. Just tell them in person what the next episode's going to be. So... You know, check with me if you have any questions or ideas, obviously. Yeah, stay tuned. Um, Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you've learned something new. Bye.